Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to the podcast. And before we get started today, I have a super exciting announcement. Today is the day that my blog is live. So for those that may not be familiar, I've spent the last month creating a blog to complement my podcast. Now, I'll include a link to the blog in the description of today's episode, but you can find me at ancientconspiracies.net. On the blog, I'm basically sharing the most current headlines pertaining to biblical prophecy. It's really more of a way for us to stay on top of what's happening in the world and to communicate. But the real magic is in the private blog that I've created for members only. And that's where I'll be sharing all of the reference material from each episode of my podcast, including links and pictures, plus a library of content that I've collected over the years, including PDFs of books and videos, audio, some of which can no longer be found anywhere online. There's also a search feature where you can search keywords for any topic that interests you and immediately pull up all of the information that I've covered on it. And this is for my most dedicated listeners who are not only interested in seeing what it is that I'm talking about each episode, but researching it more for themselves. Now, membership will normally be $10 a month, but I'm offering an introductory discount for founding members. So from now until March 1st, membership is $5 a month. And for those of you that are already listener supporters, please contact me through the blog with your name and email. Once it's verified, I'll automatically send you the invitation for membership to the private blog. And just so you know, this membership fee basically helps cover the time and effort that I put towards the podcast and now the blog. In the last five months, I've learned how to use recording software, how to operate a microphone, how to edit episodes, upload them, and then most recently, how to create a blog. And I've done it all completely on my own with no outside help and zero past experience. So this has truly become a job for me that I don't get paid for, and I spend a ridiculous amount of time on. But I genuinely love it and it's like a weekly Bible study for me and it truly blesses my soul to be able to share the knowledge with others. So your support helps me while also getting something in return for it. And there's one final thing that I want to mention before we move on. This will obviously be a living blog that will update with news headlines and each new podcast episode. But I do want to warn you that I'm not fully caught up with entering all of the content on the private blog. The library is mostly in place, but I'm actively trying to input all of the episodes. It took me a good couple of weeks just to build the blog before I was ever able to start entering content. So I'm running just a touch behind, but I assure you that I'm working fast and furious to get it all entered as quickly as possible. And I just want to take a moment and thank you from the bottom of my heart for following my podcast and taking such an interest that there became a need for a blog to be created. I'm so looking forward to building a community of like-minded individuals, all searching for the truth. So with that out of the way, let's get started with today's episode. We have officially reached some pretty intense topics, and today's episode is going to be absolutely fascinating, albeit slightly terrifying, especially if you haven't been closely following the headlines the last few years. 
aliens. How do they fit into the biblical narrative? Well, this is a topic that has fascinated me for years. You can no longer deny the reality of them. This is a very real phenomena, and I hate to break it to you, but disclosure has already happened. It's no longer a question of if they're real, but rather what they are. In 2019, a reality docu-series aired called Unidentified. I happened to stumble upon it right as it began airing and was hooked. In it, a team of top-level retired military and government officials, as well as leaders from some high-ranking private programs who work alongside the military, like Lockheed Martin Skunk Works program, came together to investigate military encounters with UAPs. Now, for those that aren't familiar, what used to be called Unidentified Flying Objects, or UFOs, are now known as Unidentified Air phenomena or UAPs. And this team was put together by Tom DeLong, a former guitarist and lead vocalist for the popular band Blink-182, who had a legitimate lifelong interest in the UFO phenomenon. And because of his fame and connections to the people in leadership, he was able to assemble a team of members who previously held high-level positions in the intelligence community or the military. All of them, with the exception of Tom DeLong, had connections to the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, or the Pentagon. And the man brought in to lead this team was Luis Elizondo. Now, he was a former U.S. Army counterintelligence special agent. Say that ten times fast. And he was a former employee of the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Now, back in 2017, an article was published by the New York Times exposing a multi-million dollar program headed by the Pentagon to investigate UFOs. The program, which was quietly created a decade earlier at the guidance of Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, was called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And Lou Elizondo was the program director for ATIP until he retired in October of 2017, which sparked the media coverage that uncovered the program. In the very first episode of the television show Unidentified, Lou Elizondo shares how he was restricted by government protocols and the realization that their efforts at ATIP just weren't being taken seriously. So he retired from the program and joined this private team to continue researching outside of the governmental red tape. And their investigation is what was documented through the show. In season one, they interviewed several former military members and some active military members who were brave enough to come forward with their extraterrestrial experiences while serving. And the show even exposed actual evidence, video footage taken by the military. They brought in experts from numerous fields in an attempt to explain it, but ultimately the footage just couldn't be disputed. Now, the goal of the show was to gather enough evidence that they could legitimately go before Congress and present proof that there is something unknown being encountered by our military. And they wanted our government to recognize its reality so that we can begin designating funds towards a defense strategy. 
Now, while the first season was airing in the summer of 2019, Lou Elizondo and members from the team completed their goal and took their findings before Congress and the Senate in a classified briefing. And this made news headlines throughout the country. The evidence was undoubtedly so compelling that it ultimately led the U.S. Navy to institute a formal UFO reporting mechanism, which has since received a staggering 510 UFO encounters, some dating as far back as the late 1990s. And to be honest, there are probably hundreds more from people who are still afraid to jeopardize their reputation by coming forward. In April of the following year, 2020, the Pentagon declassified three UFO videos taken by Navy pilots, and those two hit the mainstream media. One of the videos shows an unidentified object flying at high speeds taken by Navy pilots during a training exercise. And in it, you can hear the pilots expressing shock and awe. One pilot went so far in the audio as to claim that there was an entire fleet of these crafts. And then just a couple of months ago, in December of 2022, President Biden signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes several UFO provisions into law. Besides creating a powerful new UFO office, the legislation officially redefined UFO as UAP, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, a term that they're using to describe any unknown object observed not only in the air, but in both water and in space. So what could these beings be? Well, theories have circulated for decades, including them being visitors from other planets or interdimensional beings, which we're going to discuss in a future episode. But one of the more widely promoted theories in recent years, which has been promoted by popular television shows like Ancient Aliens, comes from the writings of Eric Von Daniken, who wrote a groundbreaking book in 1968 called Chariots of the Gods. And his theory is that they are sky gods who visited mankind in our ancient past, gifted us advanced technology, and not only that, that they genetically altered us and we may even be descendants of them. Now, on a personal note, I was a pretty strong Christian in high school, and I had this science teacher who I loved. He was an older gentleman, one of those iconic teachers who takes a genuine interest in the lives of their students and really challenges them to be better. And I'll never forget him pulling me to the side one day after class, probably because I continually challenged most of his teachings on evolution. And I remember him handing me a book and telling me something to the effect of, of take this home and read it and then tell me that this doesn't shake your faith in God. And the book was called Chariots of the Gods. And I remember taking it home and getting through maybe one or two chapters and having to stop reading it because I just couldn't in my young faith justify how it fit into the biblical narrative. And it scared me. Now, my faith in God remained strong, but I was afraid of venturing too far away from scripture and becoming confused. So I put the book down and never finished reading it. But fast forward 20 years, and here I am, full circle, with the very answer that I didn't have back then. It's funny how God brings things to our memory that we'd completely forgotten to show us, in a way, how our future was being foreshadowed. And I had completely forgotten about that memory until I was writing this episode. 
So in 2006, the popular show Ancient Aliens began airing on the History Channel. And Eric Von Daniken was a regular commentator, and his theory became one of the main narratives on the show. It was immediately coined by Ancient Aliens as the Ancient Astronaut Theory. Now, his theory, along with other popular theories, brought in from Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote about the Sumerian Anunnaki gods in his book, The Twelfth Planet, birthed the narrative that aliens visited our planet in the ancient past and genetically altered us from apes to create Homo sapiens. And then, for whatever reason, they left, but they will eventually return and claim their rightful position as our creators. Now, under normal circumstances, I would call that absolute insanity, except for the fact that the Bible hints at this history as well. If you remember in Genesis 3, after the serpent deceives Eve in the Garden of Eden, God curses the serpent and tells him, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers, unquote. Now remember, the serpent is typically recognized as Satan, who was quite literally a fallen angel. Have you ever wondered what the seed of the serpent could have been? Could angels have offspring? Well, according to the book of Enoch, the answer is yes. If you've been following my podcast for any length of time, you know that I talk a lot about the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch expounds on a passage in Genesis 6, where we're told that in the days of Noah, the sons of God came to the daughters of man and had children by them. Now, in the book of Enoch, Enoch claims that the offspring of this unholy union were hybrids, giants, which coincidentally happens to be the historical account within Greek mythology as well. And in order to feed their giant offspring, the fallen angels genetically manipulated both plants and animals as well. When Noah is chosen to be saved, scripture says that he was, quote, perfect in his generations. The word perfect in Hebrew translates to tamim, meaning genetically pure or undefiled. The fallen angels had genetically corrupted literally everyone and everything on earth. We're also told in the book of Enoch that they taught mankind a corrupt version of heavenly knowledge, advanced technology, and ultimately promoted themselves as our gods. And this is why there are scriptures like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, that says, quote, When you see the hosts of heaven, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping them, unquote. In episode 7, I discussed how ancient idol worship was actually ancient angel worship, the fallen angels who once promoted themselves as our gods. And this corrupt version of history continues to resurface even today. They continue to be promoted as our creators. And interestingly, they're still dabbling in genetics. 
Is it any coincidence that most abductees claim that they were strapped to a medical table and a medical procedure was performed, usually revolving around reproduction? Some even go so far as to claim that these beings seduced them into sexual acts in order to become impregnated or to impregnate the abductee, only afterwards to shapeshift from a beautiful human into a reptilian or otherworldly being similar to the stories from Greek mythology. In the most disturbing accounts, women report becoming pregnant and then in a future abduction, having their baby taken away. And this battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of man is sprinkled all throughout scripture. If we skip forward to Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his seed was going to become a stranger in a land that wasn't theirs for 400 years. Now, hearing this, Satan clearly devises a defense strategy. And by the time the seed of Abraham arrived in the promised land, 440 years later, the giants were camped there waiting on them. A second incursion of fallen angel seed, which was actually verified back in Genesis 6. When talking about the offspring of the fallen angels and the women of earth, Genesis 6 says, quote, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards, unquote. Then, of course, if you skip forward to the New Testament, you see Christ himself say, quote, As it were in the days of Noah, so it shall be with the coming of the Son of Man, unquote. Now, does this mean that the fallen angels will return and try to mate with humans once again to create serpent seed? Well, that's up for debate, but what we do know is what we discussed last episode. The final age of mankind was prophesied by Daniel in his translation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel makes a very interesting comment also pertaining to seed. Quote, and whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, talking about the final kingdom of history, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, unquote. And this implies that for whatever reason, there will not be a marriage of genetics like has happened in the past. So let's expound on this. Why did the fallen angels attempt to cohabitate with mankind to begin with? Well, in order to truly understand the purpose of this commingling, you must first understand the history. If we go back to the book of Enoch, when God passes judgment on the fallen angels for their corruption of earth, he not only binds them and places them in prison, but he tells them that they will never again access the heavenly realm. And according to Enoch, this judgment comes as a complete shock to them. And you may not have immediately recognized the connection, but also in Enoch's writings, he prophesies the second coming of Christ before the flood of Noah. How did Enoch, first of all, know about Christ, and second, know that he would be coming to redeem mankind? Did God give Enoch this knowledge directly, or was this knowledge of a coming Savior given after the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden and became common knowledge? 
Regardless of how this was known, it explains the fallen angel's attempt to corrupt the seed of mankind. In the same way that Herod tried to kill baby Jesus, and we've mentioned from Greek mythology accounts that even Kronos swallowed each of his children the moment they were born because it had been prophesied that one of his children would overthrow him. The fallen angels, too, attempted to corrupt the seed of mankind in an attempt to thwart the plan of redemption and their impending judgment. What's interesting, though, is that the commingling of angels with humans appears to have only happened up to the time of Jesus. When Christ dies, 1 Peter chapter 3 says that his spirit went to hell and he ministered to the imprisoned fallen angels from the days of Noah. Now, it's very likely that this was the moment in which they realized that there was no point in continuing to corrupt the seed of woman because Christ was it. They failed. Therefore, they changed their tactic, and it's possible that their motive from that point on was no longer to insert their own corrupt genetics into mankind, but to utilize genetics in an attempt to manipulate a way into salvation so that they could be redeemed alongside mankind and re-access the heavenly realm. In other words, gain entrance into the heavenly realm by creating a passable human with a salvageable soul. Now that's just a possibility. And there's one other thing that I feel is important to mention here. When God passes judgment on the fallen angels in the book of Enoch, he also passes judgment on their offspring. Having been born of earthly women, their bodies were mortal and would die. But because they had angelic fathers, their spirits were eternal. And rather than be allowed access into heaven upon their death, God actually cursed their spirits to remain on earth as evil spirits, what we would call today demons. So there's a distinct difference in demonic entities and fallen angels. Demons are the disembodied spirits of the fallen angel offspring. And therefore, it's highly unlikely that aliens are of demonic origins. Malevolent, yes. Demonic, unlikely. In fact, the differing accounts of what these beings tend to look like is eerily similar to the description of malevolent angels in the Bible. Many abductees describe them as reptilian. And how has Satan or forces of evil long been portrayed throughout Scripture? As the serpent in the Garden of Eden or the dragon in the book of Revelations? Reptilian. And as we discussed in episode 7, the angelic species seraphim literally translates into Hebrew as fiery serpent, which not only conjures up images of ancient dragons, but in modern day could depict a reptilian being who comes in a fiery craft. It just goes to show that one person's angel may be another person's alien. How people have interpreted these visitations and beings is entirely based on their belief system, their culture, and the scientific knowledge that they had during their period of history. A chariot of fire to Elisha may be considered a UFO to you or to me. 
And I hesitate to share this, but it's a major connection that I made 14 years ago to the alien greys. Back in 2009, I was given a year's worth of magazines by a friend. And in each month's episode, the founder of Prophecy in the News, J.R. Church, broke down the book of Enoch and wrote commentary on it throughout the course of the year. Now, he eventually compiled all of this commentary into book form years later. Coincidentally, if you become a member of my private blog, you'll have access to this commentary, which I scanned and saved digitally all those years ago. So I remember very distinctly reading through this commentary and stumbling upon a section where Enoch is being given a tour of the heavens and earth and then hell. And in the commentary was a description of what Enoch claims essentially to be the gatekeepers of hell. And they were described in the commentary as child size with pale skin. And this was the moment where the synapses of my cerebral cortex lit up. And for the first time ever in my life, I made the connection between aliens and angels. I remember exactly where I was. I remember the lighting of the room, the location of the furniture. I even remember exactly on the page where this information was located. This moment will forever be burned into my memory as life changing. And I remember shouting it from the rooftops immediately to my closest friends. Yet when I went back to look at the commentary years later to find that information, it's not there at all. And I've never been able to find it since. Now, I still have the exact magazine, the physical copies of the same magazines that I read 14 years ago, and it's nowhere to be found. In fact, I've secretly wondered if it was just something that God illuminated my eyes to see for just that moment, or whether I've been a victim of the Mandela effect. It was there, and I'll never forget it. Enoch was describing what has widely become known in modern day as alien greys, but he referred to them as being in the capacity of the gatekeepers of hell, which possibly explains why their appearance in our skies is slowly ramping up. Hell is getting closer and closer to being unleashed, just as was prophesied in the book of Revelation. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're given a description of the arrival of the Antichrist, which eerily mimics the return of Christ. Now, I've mentioned numerous times in previous episodes that whatever God has, Satan always seems to have a counterfeit. And in the same way that Christ's return is prophesied to be accompanied by signs in the heavens, the arrival of the Antichrist also happens to be accompanied by signs and wonders in the heavens, the counterfeit return of who the world will accept as Christ. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls this event a strong delusion, a lie that God allows the unrighteous to believe. And Pastor Tom Horn puts forth the question of what might constitute false signs and wonders in the heavens. Might we discover life on other planets? Could we establish first contact? Or could this be something like an armada of UFOs suddenly appearing in our skies? 
Well, we are getting ridiculously close to contact. In 2019, NASA's chief scientist, Jim Green, speculated that they were close to finding life on Mars. And way back in 2010, one of the Pope's chief astronomers, Guy Consolmagno, said that he would be delighted to find intelligent life among the stars. And in 2014, Pope Francis himself made a shocking statement, claiming that he would go so far as to baptize aliens. And Guy Consolmagno replied to this statement by saying, quote, any entity, no matter how many tentacles it has, has a soul, unquote. And this is the very thinking that could eventually lead mankind into a gigantic setup, a strong delusion. I want to play you an audio clip of Pastor Tom Horn talking about a fictional novel written in 1958 called A Case of Conscience, in which humanity has recently discovered life on another planet and sends a team of investigators, including a Jesuit priest, to study these new beings and determine whether they are compatible to commingle with Earth. Take a listen to this. In 1958, a peculiar novel was published under the title A Case of Conscience by James Blish. In the story, um, a Jesuit priest named Father Ruiz Sanchez and a team of scientists, they travel to a newly discovered planet dubbed in the book Lithia. They go there to study the Lithians who live there. Now unknown to the science team, the Vatican secretly advises the Catholic Father to investigate whether the aliens have redeemable souls. But what he finds in the Lithians are intelligent creatures whose morality fits perfectly with Christianity, but who seem to be devoid of any concept of religion or God. And so his dilemma grows, and soon he is invited to visit with a Lithian family. And he writes this, quote, Here was the first chance, at long last, to see something of the private life of Lithia, and through that, perhaps, to gain some inkling of the moral life, the role in which God had cast the Lithians in the ancient drama of good and evil, in the past and in the times to come. Until that was known, the Lithians in their Eden might be only spuriously good, all reason, all organic thinking machines, ultimax, with tails but without souls." End quote. Now I'm not going to spoil the ending of that book for you, but it's important to note that the fictional Father Ruiz Sanchez warns the Vatican to classify Lithia as X1, meaning a planet to be forever quarantined from Earth and humans due to its potential for great deception. Let me quote again. What we have here on Lithia is very clear indeed, he wrote. We have, and now I'm prepared to be blunt, a planet and a people propped up by the ultimate enemy. It is a gigantic trap prepared for all of us, for every man on earth and off of it. We can do nothing with it but reject it, nothing but say to it, retro me, Santanas. 
if we compromise with it in any way, we are damned, end quote. Now, when Ruiz Sanchez uses the phrase retro me santanas, he is enunciating the medieval Catholic formula for exorcism, vade retro santanas, or go back Satan, a clear reckoning that the aliens on Lithia are part of a satanic plot to be avoided at all costs, an astro-theological conspiracy designed to mislead mankind at some point in the future. Now, in the book, he eventually convince, uh, convinces the Pope, Pope Hadrian, in the novel, of the satanic stratagem. But ironically, he's unable to convince all of the church's theologians. Now, did the author of A Case of Conscience, did he foresee how such great deception would eventually be embraced by the Vatican and its leadership, its scholars, its theologians, as a result of some of Rome's celebrated scholars and astronomers? Now, I shared this because although it's fiction, when real-life science fiction writer Joe Walton asked real-life Jesuit Guy Consolmagno what he made of the issues posed by James Blish's novel, Consolmagno admitted that the Jesuits are the strongest advocates of enculturation, basically slowly adopting the characteristics of an alien culture into Christendom. Joe Walton ultimately concluded that if Guy Consolmagno had been the Jesuit priest sent to Lithia in the fictional book, we would already be in contact with aliens and finding out as much as we could about them. But there's one other fascinating connection hidden in this fictional novel that Pastor Tom Horn points out, and it lies in the name of the planet Lithia and its inhabitants, the Lithians. Now, on the surface, it appears to be connected to their abundance of lithium, the very substance used in modern batteries and nuclear weapons. But the planetary name Lithia may also share a connection to the Greek goddess Alithia whose primary job in the ancient world was to protect the seed of the serpent and in turn generate the birth of the serpent child and future serpent savior. Alithia in Greek mythology was considered a daughter of Zeus, but in Aesop's fables, she was the daughter of Prometheus, the exact name of a modern movie in which scientists venture into the darkest areas of space in search of mankind's origins, leading to an alien race that is deeply malevolent. Now, so important was the goddess Alithia's role in the ancient days as the preserver of the serpent seed that shrines were erected to her by cult followers across Greece. Terracotta statues of immortal nurses were depicted watching over the divine children in whom the bloodline would survive. These were ancient pagan depictions which were eventually claimed by the Catholic Church to be Mother Mary and baby Jesus. And this would mean that the pagan serpent child, who ultimately becomes the serpent savior, 
is Apollo. Alithia was widely known as the nurse of Apollo. If you haven't heard my episodes on Apollo, I encourage you to go back and listen to episodes 13 and 14. The prophecy of his birth was forever imprinted on the great seal of the United States. The Novus Ordo Seclorum came from the pagan prophetess of Apollo, who was prophesying about his birth and the future age when he returns to rule earth once again as the pagan son of God, who we know as the Antichrist. So it's possible that James Blish was drawing a connection in his fiction novel, Concealed in Plain Sight, to the discovery of alien life with the return of the ancient pagan god. And speaking of which, many abductees who encounter these extraterrestrial interdimensional beings often claim that these beings came from specific star systems. One of the most common star systems they claim to come from is the Pleiades. Now, the Pleiadians are commonly described as looking practically indistinguishable from humans. They stand between six and seven feet tall with whitish blonde hair, blue eyes, and pale skin. Very Nordic, Scandinavian looking. And they're often described as the Aryan race. Coincidentally, exactly all of the characteristics that Hitler was trying to replicate. They're also described by many who encounter them as benevolent and beautiful with telepathic abilities. But here's the problem. In medieval books of magic like the Key of Solomon and the Lesser Key of Solomon, Pastor Tom Horn claims that the Pleiades star system is associated with Apollo. And it, along with the star system Orion, is listed as the home of the 72 powerful angels that God had at one point placed over the nations. The 72 angelic principalities, which are believed to currently preside over the affairs of earth. The very principalities that were told in Ephesians, quote, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places, unquote. And these 72 angels who may appear to some as angels of light are believed in occultism to be the key players who will usher in the return and rule of Apollo on earth. We are being programmed, whether by Hollywood in movies like Avatar or by abductees claiming that these beings are benevolent. The ignorant among us are being subconsciously conditioned to believe that there are other creations out there that can interact with us in a peaceful way if we allow them to. And this isn't a new concept. In episode 14, I went into detail about a book that was written in the 1600s by Sir Francis Bacon about the Atlanteans. Plato claimed that the Atlanteans were a prosperous nation as long as they were working in harmony with and worshiping the gods. In the same way that the Greek poet Hesiod also wrote about a race of Gorgons. 
calling them friendly and claiming that by worshiping them, they brought blessing. Now, interestingly, Alexander William Mayer, a 20th century Scottish scholar who was also a professor of Greek at the University of Edinburgh, translated Hesiod's Theogony and wrote that the Gorgons were born with gray skin. Another possible connection to what's commonly referred to today as the alien grays. And that's where we're going to end today. But before we go, I want to encourage and empower you. First John chapter four encourages us to test the spirits. Quote, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not not confess Jesus is not from God, unquote. In Luke chapter 10, Christ himself says, quote, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you, unquote. We're also told in scripture that during these signs and wonders among the heavens, that men's hearts will fail them for the fear of the things that are coming upon the earth, which could allude to visitation or possibly the veil being lifted, which had once held back the evil that has long been restrained. Now, hopefully we're not here to witness that, but even if we are, you have more power than you could possibly imagine. Take authority and hold your peace. You are from God and have overcome such things because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, next week, we're going to talk about some interesting connections that the Pope and the Vatican have to the search for intelligent life among the stars. And we're going to talk about the telescope that they have built and curiously named Lucifer, which they are using to peer into deep space. And they've even hinted that they may, in fact, be monitoring something approaching the Earth. This is an episode that you're not going to want to miss. And just a reminder, my new blog is currently live. You can find me at ancientconspiracies.net to stay up to date with news headlines pertaining to biblical prophecy. In the meantime, if you're loving the podcast, please consider becoming a listener supporter and helping me do what I love so that I can continue sharing this knowledge with others. There's a link in the description of today's episode if listener support is something that you're interested in. If not, please consider leaving me a review on whatever platform you're using. Reviews bring credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show. And as always, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time. 